Good evening. Please turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We will start in verse 1, and even though I intend to preach on the whole chapter, uh, we will go to verse 7 at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Excuse me, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. We've been going through the book of Genesis. This evening we've come to Genesis chapter 3. I feel like someone has given me a year's worth of food and said, you have 30 minutes to eat it. Uh, There's no way that I could ever devour a year's worth of food in 30 minutes. Therefore, I'm going to take an hour, not tonight, but 30 minutes tonight and 30 minutes next Sunday. So I'll still not be able to devour all of it, but I'm going to try. Tonight, what I plan on doing is giving you, to, to give you a macro view, a wide lens view, not only of Genesis 3, but how the opening chapters of Genesis, as Pastor Johnson has so wonderfully done and introduced us, how these chapters give us a framework for understanding all of the Bible. And I'm going to do that briefly, hopefully in 10 minutes or so, and then narrow in to what we see in Genesis 3, going, going section by section. So first, the, the broad general scope. One of the main concepts that is in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, which Pastor Johnson has so wonderfully illuminated for us, is the concept of headship. When God created man, created Adam, he created him as a head of uh, the human race. And it's not simply that, oh, this is just one dude, for lack of a better term, and he's going to create other people. It's that God chose to deal with mankind through representation. You may not have voted for your congressman, but your congressman represents you. It's not the exact same with Adam, but whether or not you wanted to, we were represented in Adam. In Genesis 2, 
uh, verses 16 through 17, when um, God says to Adam that you may eat, surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the, in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. It's not simply that he was giving him this one rule, and it was just this rule that he may obey, may not obey. It was, in fact, a test. We often refer to the Garden of Eden as a paradise, and in a sense it was. But, in another sense, it was not a paradise that was forever yet. There was still the possibility of falling. There was a test given to Adam. Therefore, what many people have said is that it is a time of probation or testing. Here is what my Westminster Seminary professor, Lane Tipton, has said concerning not only Genesis 3, but the whole Bible. And tonight I'm going to be a little bit more theologically precise than I normally am. But you all are smart people, so you can handle it. He said that God seeks to give himself in a communion bond. Let me stop there. Pastor Johnson has told us about a covenant, the covenant of creation. He defined the covenant as a friendship or a bond. So that's a great start. God seeks to give himself in a a communion bond on a holy people in a holy realm, advancing them beyond probation or testing through an obedient federal head into rest. That's a, that's a mouthful. Let me say it one more time, and then we'll go through it really quick. God seeks to give himself in a communion bond, a bond on a holy people in a holy realm, advancing them beyond testing through an obedient federal head into rest. The garden was a type of temple. It was a type of holy place in which Adam was placed to guard this holy realm. He was to be holy himself, to walk in obedience to God. He was tested in this realm, and he was to be an obedient federal head, an obedient head of the human race. That was what he was supposed to be. If he had obeyed, then he would have had to eat had the right to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life was, you might say, a sacrament in which it was a sign pointing to rest, to the future rest that people would have uh, if Adam had obeyed. Therefore, we needed, because he fell, and we're going to get into this, another federal head. We needed Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam. And Christ would advance us into rest. Now, that rest, that word rest, is deliberately chosen in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, as Pastor Johnson has said, the Sabbath day was the seventh. And it was a rest that God entered into as a sign that we would enter into rest. Okay, that that was the point. Even after the fall, we see that there are signs of this rest. I would argue, this isn't my own idea, but that the the land of Israel, the promised land, was in fact a kind of sign, the land of rest. It was a sign that was pointing forward to the future rest. In In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the big picture of what God is doing. 
Let me give you a little bit more precise theology because you can handle it. I grew up knowing the word eschatology. Uh, It was the study of the last things. And whenever someone told me about eschatology, I always thought about the book of Revelation because that's what I was taught, that eschatology is really about revelation. But the last, eschatology literally is the last study of the last things. Here's another word for you, soteriology, that is the study of salvation. If, if, you have a, if you hear about an eschatology conference, most likely people are talking about the book of Revelation today. But what I learned in seminary, and I think it's true, is that even in the garden, there is an eschatology. There is, a, there is in view the last things, namely that rest. That rest is a sign of the eschatological, the future rest that we, we will enter into through our obedient federal head, in this case, Christ, not Adam. What I was taught in seminary or before I say that, what I was taught growing up was that salvation comes before eschatology. You have the fall, and then you have salvation, and then you have eschatology at the very end. But what I was taught in seminary is you have at the very beginning eschatology. You have the future in view. And when Adam falls, then you have soteriology. Then you have a study of salvation. So at the very beginning, that you have eschatology, and the phrase was eschatology precedes soteriology. There you go. Now I've given you the the Sunday school lesson. I know this is not as much of a sermon as it is more like a Sunday school lesson, but I think it's important what's happening. The tree of life was there as a sign of rest. Now, as an aside, I was not taught this in seminary, but a good fiction book, if you ever want to read a fiction book, is Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. It's his second book in the Space Trilogy. And in that book, he go, Ransom, who is the, the main character, it's a fiction book, okay? I'm not saying everything is theologically true. Ransom travels to another world. And in that world, there's a king and a queen. Uh, God had created them. He doesn't go by the same name, but it's, a, it's an allegory. And in that world, the king and the queen are tested, just like they were in this world. But the story is about how they sustain the test, and they don't fall into sin, and that all of their children then enter into a a kind of world that was a paradise. So it's an interesting view, uh, a counterpart to, to this story, not story, this true historical account that we have in Genesis. I just give you that as an interesting side note. Not as one necessarily theologically precise, but just an interesting book. Let me tell you a few other things that are happening in the book of Genesis before we narrow in. Genesis chapter 3 in particular. There are a few things that we don't see, or two things, namely we don't see stated in Genesis 3, but we see the outworking. We don't see the fall of Satan. Pastor Johnson talked a little bit about that and where he sees that happening in the book of Genesis, um, I, th- I believe, if I can remember correct, he said between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We don't see the fall of Satan here, but we do see Satan coming in Genesis 3. I would love to know more about the fall of angels, but we don't see it. Another thing we don't see, but we see the outworking, 
is the establishment of the covenant of grace. Now, when I say the establishment, I mean that God the Father, in, uh, in his wisdom, called God the Son, then the Son voluntarily submitted himself to redeem a people. We don't see the establishment. We don't see any dialogue between the Father and the Son here. But we do see the outworkings of it, particularly in Genesis 3.15, and I will go into that when I get there. But presumably, and what many theologians have seen, is that there is, in fact, a pact between the, the members of the Trinity in which Christ offers himself as the second Adam. And we don't see the establishment, but we see it revealed here. We see the outworking of it. Let me give you one last consideration before going to the text. The historicity of Adam and Eve. If you go onto college campuses and if you go into many churches today, they will say, uh, or maybe not say, that Adam and Eve are historical people. I give you this because, I, I say this because it is important for you in order to derive the benefit of what is taught here that you believe that Adam and Eve were historical people. Romans uh, 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 talk about Adam as uh, the last, excuse me, Christ as the last Adam and talk about Adam as a true historical person. Therefore, if you say that Adam is not historical, what you're saying is that the Bible is not inerrant, without error. You are saying that there is no real integrity to the Bible, that there is no integrity to the covenant of grace. And if there's no need for a historical Adam, then is there really a need for a historical Christ? Is there really a need for the salvation that Christ brings? It's really important, therefore that we hold to a historical Adam. Richard Gaffin, a New Testament scholar, wrote a book called No Adam, No Gospel. I think the title says it all. Historical Adam is significant and important. Gerhardus Voss, last thing I'll say on this topic before going into the text, Gerhardus Voss anticipated this over around 100 years ago. Let me read to you a quote from Gerhardus Voss He says that attempts have been made to turn the biblical phrases to render them compatible with science, but attempts of this kind make for poor enforced exegesis. Scripture, and by exegesis, he just means interpretation. Scripture has a right to be exegeted or interpreted independently from within, and only after its natural meaning has thus been ascertained, we can properly raise the question of agreement or disagreement between Scripture and science. I could say a whole lot more, and perhaps I've ruffled some feathers in saying this. I don't intend to say that we should reject science. I don't think we should. But we need to interpret Scripture on its own terms before we interact with science. Okay, having said all of that as way of introduction, let us go now to Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 1, what we have is a very crafty serpent. I have no doubt that when the Bible talks here that the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, 
that Satan is going to indwell this, uh, this creature. And where I get that is through other verses in the Bible. Revelation 20, uh, 12, verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's obvious to me anyway that Satan has come to indwell this serpent. And what is his tactic with Eve? It is, did God actually say? It is to throw a curveball at, at the woman. I find it interesting, maybe it's a coincidence, that whenever a snake is drawn, it has a forked tongue, right? I find that interesting, that it's, he's equivocating about what God has said here. Uh, did God really say that you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? He makes it sound as if God's command is an oppressive restriction over Eve's freedom. In other words, that God's commands don't lead to freedom, they lead away from freedom. In verse 4, well, before we get there, Eve says that we may eat of any of the trees, but she says you may not eat He said, you may not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. She adds, you shall touch it. Neither shall you touch it. She adds that to the word of God. I think at this moment she was starting to slip and was starting to listen to the serpent. Then the serpent outright contradicts what God has said. You will not surely die. You will be like God. What do we see here? We see that Satan has planted the seeds of doubt into this woman's mind. Interestingly, in in my opinion, that even before this fall, God's created world, what we call general revelation, was still to be interpreted through his spoken word, his special revelation, even before the fall. Eve was meant to Remember what God had said, his special revelation, and walk according to that word and interpret everything that she hears, sees, feels in light of what God has commanded. But she doesn't do that here. Instead, what happens is that she exchanges a, the truth of God for a lie. That is, of course, what Romans one twenty five talks about, that They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is what's going on. Satan has planted the uh, the seeds of doubt and Eve is going to worship, you might say, that which she sees. In verse 6, it says that she looks out and she sees that the tree is good for food. She's trusting in her sight rather than in God's word. Who was with her? Adam was with her. There's some debate about this, but I think that Adam was there to watch all of this happen. Some debate about that, but Adam was supposed to be the prophet, priest, and king of this realm, this holy realm. He was to be a holy, a holy representative, a holy vice regent in this holy realm, and he ought to have struck down the serpent, but he doesn't do that. Now, I want to know how that serpent got in there in the first place. I, I want to know, <laughs> how did he get, he get there? But we're not told. We're not told everything we might like to know. But 
Adam, who was supposed to be the king and ruler over this created realm, allows Satan to tempt, and he falls into sin as well. Uh, This is the beginning of every kind of sin, every kind of suffering and pain and physical and spiritual death. Next week, I'm going to devote my time to the doctrine of sin. What, what did this do to man? What are sin's manifestations? What are, what are its implications for all of humanity? What does it look like in our lives? Uh, and particularly in, in this account, what does sin look like? And I'm, I'm going to skip it for now, but just to say, in verse 7, their eyes are opened. What do they see? Instead of seeing themselves like God, they see their own nakedness. They see their guilt and shame. They see the fear of God. One of the unique things about the human race, even though we are not technically a part of the animal kingdom, we are God's pinnacle of creation, we are the only animal to wear clothes. You go out and see the animal kingdom, people are furred and they have feathers or they don't have it, but we wear clothes. Why do we wear clothes? Because we're ashamed. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that uh, they had no clothes, but as soon as their eyes are opened, if you remember, I think it was the very last verse in chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed of being naked, but... When they fall into sin, immediately, shame and guilt, and they feel the need to clothe themselves and cover themselves because they know that God sees them in their guilt and shame, and they, they can't bear it. Here's what S.G. DeGraff said, that... Do you know what the first feeling is that hits us after we have sinned? Not remorse, but great disappointment. The moment we commit the sin, the false light goes out and the sinful act no longer appears so attractive. Adam and Eve were suddenly ashamed to be naked in each other's presence and therefore covered themselves with fig leaves. They had become strangers to each other. The whole creation had become strange to them. They were fearful of everything, especially God, although they had earlier loved him deeply and felt very close to him. Not only was man lost to God, the whole world was lost to God as well. This is a tragic, tragic verse. Tragic. Verse 8 Now, this is the part where I did not speak about earlier. Did I not read? I did not read it. They hear, Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. I don't agree with Meredith Klein about everything. Meredith Klein was an Old Testament scholar, but one of the things that he did point out about this verse is that this is a bad thing when they hear God walking in the garden. I used to think when I read this growing up that this was a, a peaceful sound. Hey, God's strolling along in the cool of the day and it sounds good, you know, and maybe they're, you know, having fun. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, it, Klein sees this, and I didn't go back and read him, but as the judgment of God coming upon them, and they are afraid. You might say a, a judgment quake, a quake. And they are afraid 
Of course, they can't hide. But the Lord God said to the man, verse 9, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. This is the classic blame shifting that goes on with just about anybody when they're caught in some caught red-handed. We see it at the very beginning. Instead of Adam saying, "Yes, I sinned," and repenting of it, "Forgive me," he says, "Well, the, she she made me do it," and the woman says, "Well." serpent made me do it. They're compounding sin upon sin here. It's not a good thing, and it is a sign of what happens when we get caught into sin and when we do not repent. I could say more, but I I want us to focus on the curses given and at the very end, the sign of grace that we actually see. Because many times people talk about Genesis 3 as the fall, and the reason I didn't title the sermon The Fall of Man I titled it The Covenant of Grace Revealed is because we do see grace here. But where do we see it? Well, we have to look at the curse. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. I'm going to stop there. Some people have suggested that the serpent before the fall was an upright serpent, that he had legs. I don't think we have enough evidence of that. I think it's somewhat speculation, but Calvin thinks that uh, the serpent slithered around on its belly before the fall and that he rose up to tempt the, 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 the couple, the royal couple, and that he was cast down again. I tend to think that's true, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to debate it. You know, it's not a hill to die on for me. Um, what, is, what is told here is this is a humiliating kind of curse. Uh, here's what de Graff says. God made Satan feel his wrath, for Satan used the serpent in his plot to ruin God's work. God's curse, which affected the entire world, placed a sign on the serpent. Its crawling through the dust became, became a sign of its humiliation and of Satan's humiliation as well. Then he moves to Genesis 3.15. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to come back to this verse. I'm not going to read all of it because there's something significant in it. I want us instead to move ahead to the curse against the woman and come back to Genesis 3.15. The curse of the woman is that I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and you, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There are two, you might say, curses here. One is that the woman is going to have pain in childbearing. I've been told, although I'm not a scientist, that other parts of the animal kingdom don't have as much pain as 
a human woman has when she gives birth. I think it goes back to the fall. Uh, you probably will not understand the pain until you have a child, until you watch or witness this yourself. Um, I, I don't even feel qualified to say how painful it, it is because I'm not, but it is very painful. Uh, more pain than the animals. In addition to that, she's going to have a desire for her husband. That desire is not a good desire. If you look with me in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, it's probably just on the next page. What does the Bible say there? Uh, This is when Cain is about to kill Abel. And the word desire is used here as well. It's a rare word. It's not, uh, we say desire all the time, but this is actually a rare form of the word desire. And this is what Genesis 4, 7 says. If you do well, will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well... Do not do well. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That word desire is uh, the desi- in, in, inordinate desire, an exceedingly great desire that is um, to rule or master something. So what in this context it's saying is that sin is trying to master over you, but you have to master it. In our passage... What this is saying is that there's going to be strife between husband and wife, that the fall of Adam and Eve not only severed the relationship, the vertical relationship they had with God, but it also puts them against one another. Uh, The woman is going to seek to rule over or master the man or desire in an excessive desire, contrary to the husband, against the husband, and um, but... He still is the one in authority. He shall rule over you. That means there's going to... This is the source of all the marital tension, (laughs) okay, in every marriage. This is the source of all all marital problems. This is uh, the source of every divorce here. Not not only her, but him as well. I'm not saying that it's, it's all about her desire to rule over him. I'm just saying that this fall has left the marriage relationship in a fragile state. Let's turn to the curse to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Very quickly, two curses, one against the creation. I think this is the beginning of entropy. <laughs> I think this is when you go to a science class and you learn about entropy, I think this is the beginning of it. Uh, the created order was not tending to disorder in the very beginning, in my opinion. It was tending to order. And therefore, thorns and thistles are going to be the obstacle of providing for our family. By the sweat of our brow, we are going to work. Also, we are going to die physically and without Christ spiritually. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Where do we see the hope in this? In Genesis 3.15, 
it says that I will, the, the, the curse to the serpent, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Most Orthodox theologians believe this is the beginning of what you see the gospel, where you see the gospel, the beginning of the gospel. Um, Gerhardus Voss, let me just read you a quote from him very quickly, said that the promise is that somehow out of the human race a fatal blow will come which shall crush the head of the serpent. And the seed of the woman is, is going to give birth to this, what we find, we discovered in the full revelation of, of, of the Bible, is Christ. And Christ is going to crush and did crush Satan's head. We also see hope and grace the outworking of the covenant of grace in verse 20. Adam calls his wife Eve. That word Eve is, sounds like the, the Hebrew word for life or life giver. Therefore, Adam believes that he, there will be life even though God has cursed uh, him and he will return to dust. He still clings to the promise of life. She is the mother of all living, Eve is the mother of all living, and it says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We see the very beginning of the sacrificial system. What will become the sacrificial system that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, in order to be forgiven, in order to be clothed, in order to be in God's presence requires sacrifice. Here, it's a blood sacrifice that covers the garments, or covers Adam and Eve with garments of skins. But we know, of course, that this coming into God's presence will require being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He's the perfect lamb who will be slain for our sins. He is the perfect, the perfect sacrifice. Let me close with this. We see... In, in the Bible, God giving himself to us in a communion bond on a holy people in a holy realm through an obedient federal head, that is Christ, in order that we could have rest. If you want to have rest, eternal rest, if you want to have forgiveness of sins, if you want to have cleansing from the guilt and being, be able to stand in the presence of God from the very beginning until the very end, Scripture's testimony is that we need an obedient representative. We find that only in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has indeed become the lamb slain for our sins. We thank you that here in the garden, as tragic as this fall is, and as profound and devastating it will be for the entire human race and for history. We do thank you that we see the covenant of grace revealed here, that we see hope uh, in the name given to Eve, in the shed blood of the garments that covered Adam and Eve. And we thank you for the garments that covered us, for the righteousness of Christ that we receive through faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen.